Within printed page rests fates unseen, doused in ink and laid between. Shadows lurk within your findings to other realms and beyond the binding. Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Bindings. I'm Max Lopez and this week we're going to be covering, actually starting, Needful Things by Stephen King. And this was published in October of 1991, a couple months after I was born in fact. And uh, it is preceded by The Dark Tower 3, So, uh, and that is The Wastelands. That also came out in 1991, so kind of on this... Uh, King is kind of, he seems to release about two books a year, or for the most, the better part of his career, released about two books a year. And it's followed by Gerald's Game, which is uh, from 1992. Dark Tower 3, The Wastelands, uh, I mean, book three, and possibly my favorite series of all time, right next to The Lord of the Rings. So really just incredible uh, that he put out The Wastelands and this book, Needful Things, all in one year, just especially Dark Tower 3 really opens up the whole Dark Tower story and kind of starts expanding on that story along with the entire Stephen King universe. And it is freaking cool. It is so awesome. And Gerald's Game is incredibly twisted. That is a very, very twisted story. I haven't read that in a really long time. But Gerald's Game, I recall the first time I read it, it, it just being terribly disturbed by the... It's, it kind of all takes place in, not really in one room, but... It's they made a movie about it on Netflix. Not about it. They made they made it into a Netflix special. I believe it was just a movie. It wasn't a series. It might have been a series. I don't remember. But I watched it. I remember enjoying it. It doesn't have all of the things that I typically want out of uh, a Stephen King story. I don't remember there being any particular sci-fi element. But it's definitely frightening and definitely very twisted as far as delving into the human psyche. Now. Into Needful Things, I've decided I was, this book is a little bit longer, it's uh, my copy, it's about 700 pages long. I was just going to do it all in one go, but it's broken into three parts, and I finished the first part, and I really felt like, I'm not going to do 25 minutes on a book that maybe deserved 25, deserves 25 minutes per part, so we're going to spend most of the month of March on Needful Things. We're going to do three episodes, at least that's the plan right now, unless I feel like part two and part three can go together. But I have a feeling that I'm going to probably want to keep it into these three sections. Just because if, if part part one was about 275 pages, 285 pages, I do 25 minutes on, on 285 page, 300 page books all the time. So I think it would really be doing this book a lot more justice if I broke the episodes down into their different parts. So part one today, part two will be next week, and part three will be coming out the third Tuesday of March. So very excited and very interested in jumping into so many different aspects of this story. And especially, I love this because it, it, it has so many of the elements of what I love out of Stephen King's like classic writing style, where we're delving into many different characters, but for some reason we're able to kind of juggle it all, which can be really difficult for a lot of storytelling. I'm going to use A Song of Ice and Fire as a reference. So many characters juggled in that story, and I, I find it necessary, especially over the course of the unfortunate only five books released right now, 
to constantly be Wikipediaing, going back to a wiki of Ice and Fire to make sure that I remember who characters are, who their background story is. I guess you don't really need that so much in the Stephen King books just because they're all their characters that are taking place in one story as opposed to or one book as opposed to five books or a whole series of books. So it has that which I absolutely love that you can dive into all of these different characters and he weaves them in and out of each other. He weaves their stories in and out of each other and it just makes it fun to read. You just you're kind of always left wondering how a character is going to connect to some other character that you haven't seen interact with each other yet. Or if they even will, or if there's going to be some sort of linchpin character between them. So as far as character development, characters within the story, incredible. The plot is so fascinating, so fun. Fr uh, frightening at times, definitely a little haunting at times, which I absolutely love. And to the setting, it takes place in like the pinnacle setting for a Stephen King book, Castle Rock, Maine, which is going to be Stephen King's fictional town that a lot of his stories take place in. Cujo, Shawshank Prison, so Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Prison is located right outside of the town. Um, Cujo, parts of the Dead Zone, which I covered at some point last year, the Dead Zone, a part of it takes place in Castle Rock here. And it's one of the two, so Derry is the other fictional town, or at least Derry and Castle Rock are the two big ones. I can't really recall off the top of my head if there's any more fictional ones that he created, but Derry and Castle Rock are obviously hold a certain amount of mythos in the Stephen King world just because so many stories take place there. Like I said, Cujo, the Dead Zone has portions that take place there. And then even going to Gwendy's Button Box... Magic Feather, it, there is parts of it that take place in Castle Rock, but Gwendy's Button Box, the whole, the whole short, the whole novella takes place in Castle Rock. So I, I'm a sucker for it. Whenever I start a Stephen King book, if I haven't done any research on it, and it starts with Cat, and we're introduced to the to the town of Castle Rock, you know there's going to be some twisted element of as far as small town living goes, and the way that small town communities interact with each other. And in fact, of all of the stories that I've read that take place in Castle Rock, I would say that this one drops you in and intrigues you possibly the most right from the beginning. And that all has to do with the way that King writes his preface at the beginning of the story, which I, it's so fantastic because he describes it in this way that you're sitting on a bandstand in Castle Rock Park or Castle Rock's Park and you're sitting there with Stephen King. And he's addressing you as the reader and he's telling you about like kind of the ins and outs and kind of that Castle Rock's kind of this town that's it's a little sick. There's a sickness in this town that just can't get away from it and just can't be healed by it. And it within this he starts referencing Cujo. He starts referencing the story that unwinds in in Castle Rock but in the novel Dead, The Dead Zone. So many different little references to like why you should already be a little aware of this town if you've already read past Stephen King's stories. So he's kind of reminding you don't forget what this place is and keep that in mind the whole time you're reading this story which it was just one of those things like you know prefaces are always great and I, like sometimes it takes you so long to even see the connection and that is great storytelling kind of waiting to reveal the importance of that part until the middle of the book until the end of the book i love that too 
but I love King's way of just kind of showing you right off the bat, like this town is this town has some issues, and please don't forget that it's not just your average ordinary town, which I absolutely love. I and and going back to the Dark Tower too, it, it's such a great connection to how he weaves towns like this into that story or just into his whole little Stephen King universe just to say like does this place really exist or does does the idea of this place really exist and or is it just kind of its own like when you go into Castle Rock it's like a different you're in a different realm you're in Castle Rock things that happen outside of it aren't aware of what's happening inside of it and I love that. I, the preface alone, it was just fantastic. And I, I think if you're into King and you haven't read this story and you read that intro, you're sold. You're sold immediately. And then we go into part one, which is called Grand Opening Celebration. And you are immediately dropped into Castle Rock to find out that there is a new store opening called Needful Things. And everybody in the town is buzzing about the this store because nobody is sure what they are going to be selling and because it's called needful things everybody is a little bit confused and curious why there is such a strange name for some new shop and nobody really understands or knows what this shop is particularly particularly going to be selling to me it seems like an antique store that's very much what it is once you get into it but there's so much more to it and right off the bat you're introduced to uh about a 12 or 13 year old boy, I believe he's in middle school, his name is Brian Rusk, and Ryan, Brian Rusk is just kind of your average 12, 13 year old boy, loves to ride his bike, he collects baseball cards, he's got a crush on his uh, speech pathologist, which is just his speech teacher, and Brian makes our first visit to Needful Things, so... The store isn't supposed to be open at this point. The grand opening isn't until the following day. But Brian goes in and uh, he meets the owner of ne uh, of Needful Things. And he doesn't think he's supposed to be there. But the owner welcomes in him in with... Uh, with, with The owner welcomes him in very warmly. Let's just put it that way. And this is when we are introduced to... The one and only Leland Gaunt. And Leland and Brian discuss the shop. Brian brings up baseball cards. And it just so happens that Leland has the one card that Brian needs. And it is a signed Sandy Koufax card from 1956. That means absolutely nothing to me. But I'm sure, uh, I assume that this guy is a real guy. And that this card is very, very collectible. And this card just happens to be signed to a Brian. And so very interesting. It's a 1956 card that happens to be signed to a Brian and happens to be the same card that our Brian, Brian Russ, needs. And Brian pays just a very minimal amount for this card, which makes it, he makes it seem like it's very collectible. He pays a very minimal price of 80, sec, 80 cents plus an unknown favor at least an unknown favor to the reader at this point. So you're not told what the favor is, but it's like a it's like a he makes a deal for the 80 cents, but he's got to he's got to complete this favor that Mr. Gaunt wants him to complete. And you're left unknowing of what that actually is. And Brian leaves and 
his interaction with Leland is quite eerie. He's very excited at points. Leland is very cordial with him and very kind to him. But he there's this off-putting part of it that, that you're immediately put into the feeling that there's something up with this Leland gone. And Brian leaves, and we get introduced to some more characters. The next one is Polly, Polly Chalmers, who visits Needful Things. You get some background with Polly. Polly's husband and her son had died a few years before all of this. Or, sorry, not her husband, but her just her son had died several years before the events of Needful Things. Um, you get some backstory later on in part one that she actually became pregnant when she was like 18 and her parents who were very religious did not want the town to know that their their daughter had um obviously had sex without being married and also became pregnant without being married so they wanted her to leave and go have the baby with in at her aunt's home in some other state and then she can come back after she puts the baby up for adoption well she ends up leaving castle rock completely when she is I think, I, I believe it was about 18. She goes to Denver. She gets a job waitressing. And at some point she makes her way to California. And within all of this, her child is born. And then you find out through the story that she was working one day and she had a babysitter there with her son. And there was actually a fire in the apartment complex. And the babysitter and her son both died in this tragic fire. Along with this, Polly owns a sewing shop in in Castle Rock here, and she also has a very, very severe case of arthritis in her hands, which plays a really big role as far as, like, kind of like, she's very miserable for a lot of this part of the story as far as how her, her hands are just very, very miserable. Uh, I... I, I I've never actually met somebody or talked to somebody that has severe arthritis, at least that, you know, that I know of, but she makes it seem like it is really just absolutely miserable. So that plays a pretty big role in the beginning of this story as well. So going out of Polly, you get introduced to Nettie Cobb, who is also a, she also works for Polly as far as she works kind of as her maid is what it, it seems as. And Nettie actually has a really troubled past where she was like abused by her husband for years and years and it kind of got to the a breaking point for her. And she actually killed her husband and ended up in a psychiatric ward somewhere in Maine. And she was rehabilitated eventually and Polly actually helps her out and kind of helps her reestablish herself back in the town, gives her a job, helps her buy her home buys her a dog at one point, dog's name Raider, and Nettie makes her way into Needful Things as well, and she buys a piece of carnival glass, and a carnival glass is like a colorful lampshade, I believe, and she becomes terribly obsessed with this, and she has a very interesting interaction with Leland Gaunt as well, and her, uh, she ends up buying this carnival glass, and she's the first character where who buys something from Leland that becomes like terribly terribly obsessed with it and her her compulsion towards this object become like kind of like starts to rule her life to a certain degree like at points she tries to leave her home but she can't because or she tries to leave her home but 
Every time she'd get down the street, she'd be convinced that she didn't lock the carnival glass up. So she'd have to turn around and then she starts having to do kind of like these OCD type things to get herself to remember that she locked the, she locked the cabinet that she put it in, that she locked her door. One of the things she does is as soon as she locks the door to her house, she takes her car, her, her, her key to her home and she drags it along her arm to like make a red mark so that when she got down the street, she could look at the mark and say, I did lock my car. So these objects are kind of creating compulsions in the people who are buying them. The next person I'm going to introduce, his name is Hugh Priest, and he's kind of like the angry town drunk. And he's the next person that you're kind of introduced to this compulsion aspect. And he buys this foxtail. It's like one of those foxtails that you would put on the antenna of your car. You don't really see them around anymore. In fact, you don't really see antennas on cars anymore. But definitely was going to be a, would have been a more popular thing to do with like muscle cars in the 70s and 80s and I, I assume the early 90s. And uh, he becomes very obsessive with this silly, what you would assume would have been at a gas station for $1.50 or something. He becomes incredibly obsessed with this as well. He's locking it away in cabinets, has that compulsion aspect, and just can't get over it. Like all he's, it's like ruling his thoughts, which I found incredibly intriguing. I love that he did it with, because Nettie collects this carnival glass, and you could assume like there would be a certain amount of collectability with this. But with Hugh, it's like this foxtail just little ornament for your car that you think like he could honestly probably still go get one in that but for some reason this particular one holds a lot of value with Hugh. the next person you're introduced not this these aren't necessarily in order but the next person i want to talk about her name is wilma jerzik and she, you are simply introduced to wilma just because she hates nettie cobb and wilma has a huge issue with nettie and it is all revolving around the dog Raider that Polly had bought and had purchased for Nettie. And the, really the reason Polly bought it for her is I think she felt like Nettie needed some companionship out of their friendship. So uh, Wilma, though, hates this dog because Nettie, the, because Raider is... It doesn't even seem like Raider really barks all that much, but it seems like Wilma is the type of person where... It, this dog disturbed her peace once and now it's disturbing her peace whenever she thinks about her, anytime she hears it. So she absolutely hates Nettie, hates this dog, and is threatening Nettie pretty consistently about, you know, taking care of the dog. She kind of frames it in this, like, off-putting way that she would not have any issues coming over and killing this dog, which seemed a little drastic and it seemed a little dramatic to me at first, but... As the story continues to unfold, it doesn't seem as dramatic, or it, it seems dramatically accurate, I guess is the best way to put it. Another, and maybe, I think, give me one moment. Oh, not, no, not even. We have about two more I want to kind of get to, and then we'll talk about Leland a little bit more. And uh, so Danfor Danforth, Danforth, I think is probably how you can pronounce it, Buster Keaton, which uh, he hates the nickname Buster. I guess it was like his high school nickname, but he hates it. And he is, he owns like a car dealership, I believe. And he also like works on like the city commerce or something like that. And he is like, uh, he, he is like a gambling addict and he, he's lost like all of his money and 
he loves horse racing and he makes his way into he doesn't love horse racing but he loves gambling on horses let's put it that way he makes his way into needful things and it just so happens that leland has this horse racing game that's like one of those mechanical games that you would assume were probably come you know that they sold in in toy stories maybe in the in the 50s or 60s and it's completely all mechanical and it's like a horse track right and there's 10 horses and you wind the thing up and then the horses race around the track. Well, you learn from Leland that there's a little bit of um, magical lore that that comes with this game. That if you place the names of, say, you take a horse race that's actually going to be happening that day, and you, uh, you find them in the newspaper, and you you list you name every horse one of the horses from that race. Whoever wins that race in the mechanical game is going to actually win the race, and so this ends up being something that he wants and he purchases and he ends up using very, very consistently and it does pay off for him. So Dan Firth is, uh, is very aggressive as far as like he is rather verbally abusive towards his wife and he really hates this deputy um, who works for obviously the sheriff's department in Castle Rock, Deputy Norris, because Deputy Norris has been giving him uh, has been giving him parking tickets, and Buster is kind of one of these people who feel like he should never be you know called out for anything wrong he does, or like, oh, I was only parked in that handicapped spot for three minutes. Well, it's like yeah, but at the end of the day, you weren't supposed to be parked in it at all. So that's just an example. He he's kind of above the law. He thinks to a certain degree. And Buster's character has not fully unwound yet from part one. So I'm really excited to see where he's at in part two because I think that his story is going to really unwind because I haven't gotten much more from him. I, I started part two this morning and we are kind of as typical Stephen King fashion. He, he instead kind of brings in some other characters that you've been introduced to already and I'll, I'll hit on some of those characters at the end here and then lastly the big one is alan pangborn who is who is the town sheriff and pangborn is kind of he's in a relationship with polly chalmers his family has had died in what in some sort of car accident i believe the year before and he has some um he has some suspicious thoughts on needful things as a store, and he also has an interesting view on Leland. He is very unsure of Leland, and he's very suspicious of him. He actually goes and tries to pay Leland several visits throughout this part, and Leland very, very awkwardly avoids him and closes the shop down. At one point, he slips a like he slips his card like. His, Alan slips his his information under the door, and Leland's like hi hiding inside, and he eventually picks it up. And Leland picks up this uh, this this card, and he essentially burns it in his hands with without a lighter. So like this is the first time that you're fully introduced that Leland is not just a human. There's something off about him. There's something magical about him in like kind of a dark warlock kind of way even kind of like a satan kind of way you kind of get this vibe that he's like some sort of demon he reminds me a lot of charlie manx from nosferatu which nosferatu is written by stephen king's son joe hill and 
Leland is so interesting. I meant to do this earlier. I don't know why I didn't cover this earlier, but I meant to do a little Leland intro. Works out now that we've gone through everybody else, though. So Leland obviously has this weird, like, demon, warlock, uh, like, Satan kind of vibe to him, right? And it's really interesting because other characters go into the store that are less important. Not I wouldn't even consider them minor characters at this point. I think King is just trying to establish that, like, there, everybody is really interested in the story, and everybody is seemingly finding something that they can enjoy. So, Leland is described by everybody in this like very charming way, but then there's certain aspects of him that change or stay consistent. For example, every single character, and I'm not even joking, I want to say I've listed about five, I think, ha that have been into Needful Things. There's a few other ones. And every single one of them describes Leland's eyes in a different way. They're either jade, or they're hazel, or they're blue, or they're green, but everybody describes them in a different way. And I'm very curious as his character continues to unfold, he, if we're going to get a little bit more on exactly who he is, or if there's going to be that classic king like well he is whatever your perceptions of him are which i'm also cool with so leland is without a doubt the most interesting character the most mysterious character and the one that i'm most curious about his story unraveling and also that he's going to play a giant role in this uh the unraveling of everything that happens in the town basically what he's doing is he's like pitting the whole town against each other is what I'm kind of having a feeling is happening. And that's where these favors come in. So use towards the end of part one, all of the favors that he, he had made a deal with everyone. Brian Rusk is the one that we talked about earlier where he requires a favor from Brian. Brian wasn't the only one who he required a favor from. He actually required a favor from quite a few of them. One of them being Brian and Brian's favor is that he needs to go to Wilma's house, Wilma Jerzyk, and he needs to throw mud all over her, her linens that are hanging outside of her house. Well, when Wilma finds this out, she thinks that it's Nettie. And then Leland sends, oh, what was his name? He sends Hugh, priest, over to Nettie's house to go steal the carnival glass and leave a note that implies that it was that it was Wilma who stole it. So N Brian goes and does something to Wilma's house to make it seem like it was Nettie, and then Hugh goes and steals the carnival glass and makes it see seem like it was Wilma, and both Wilma and Nettie at this point completely lose their minds and they both grab a knife and they head out to the street and they basically get into a giant knife fight right in the middle of a street in in Castle Rock. And they have it out and they kill each other. I mean, they murder each other brutally. And it is incredibly graphic and incredibly described. And this is basically the entire climax of part one. And at this point, I was just complete. I wasn't shocked. I like I knew that something drastic was going to happen, but man, it just did not, it just did not quit. And so that's kind of how this whole part of the story ends. Eventually, Keaton, Buster Keaton, he's really pissed at Norris, and uh, and that kind of continues throughout the end of this, uh, at the end of this part as well. 
And uh, actually, at earlier in the story, Nettie had put uh, parking tickets all over, because Nettie had a task too because of the carnival glass. She put parking tickets. She broke into Keaton's house and put parking tickets all over his his house, and he assumed that they were all from Deputy Norris. So he gets super freaking crazy about that. He wants to kill the deputy. And ending part one, Leland is very, very content with his pawns that he has placed so easily here in Castle Rock. He's very content with his manipulation, and everybody is falling for his literal mind games quite easily. And uh, the only person who's not is the only person that he despises, really, which is Alan Pangborn, the sheriff. And I'm very curious because I know that this is kind of like, this is going to be the showdown in this story is going to be between Alan and Leland or Alan and, and Leland's little, uh, little pawns that he's been placing. I'm, it's one of those where I'm so curious, is the entire town going to turn? I, I'm hoping so just because that's so, that's such a fascinating turn of events in a story. So some of the main themes I picked up from part one are lust. I thought lust was really pushed within the obsession from all of the all of the items that were purchased at Needful Things. Greed, uh, the inability to really look past oneself and be greedy about the uh, the things that you have. Envy was huge at one point. Um, some lesser characters buy some ob buy one of them buys this picture of Elvis, and these uh, this other woman is like very envious of this and super upset like more upset than anybody should be about buying a picture of Elvis. And uh, the opposite of love thy neighbor, but hate thou neighbor. I felt like he was really, uh, King was really pushing like that, you know, some people purposely look for a reason to just despise the people that live around them. And, and I do feel like that is true. I honestly do feel like that is true. And kind of a funny theme, especially a funny theme to be presenting here in this small town story. So that's really what I have for part one. I, uh, when I get to part three, I'm going to do a whole cut, you know, I'll kind of go back, rehash some things. Again, there's a lot of ins and outs to this story, so I'm sure I miss parts. It's definitely a little bit, um, I don't want to say, I, it, it's a hard book, it's, it's hard to be a little bit more general with these kind of stories, which, you know, when I'm reading a, just a novel, I can be a little bit more general and talk about themes, but this is so intricate. It's such a woven story with so many different threads that I do feel obligated to do it justice and talk about more of the specifics with it so lust greed envy and hate thou neighbor big themes in part one very curious what i'm going to pick for part two and part three as far as themes go and if some of these continue to run and weave their way through the rest of this story so keep an eye out for part two next week i'm incredibly excited to keep reading to keep going through this one and as always, I am Max Lopez, and this is Beyond the Bindings. <laughs>